I think Dean is having more fun than any of us with this zombie series. Welcome to Chapel Hill, everyone. I, uh, I can't tell you how exciting it was for me last Sunday night when after all of these months and really after years of work on this topic regarding our denomination, where we are and where we are going, to have our elders vote unanimously that this is their sense of God's direction for us was a great moment. A great moment, and, and I know that you know and trust these people. You can trust the process that they've been uh, leading this congregation through. And so I hope that you'll engage fully in the next month in your part in doing this. This is a monumental moment in the life of our congregation, and you have the privilege of being a part of it. What pushed, pushed us over the top on the matter of going into the Evangelical Presbyterian Church was when we visited the very first gathering of the Presbytery two weeks ago. First meeting ever of the Presbytery of the Pacific, brand new Presbytery. We went wondering what we were going to find. And what we found was a Christ-centered, worshipful, prayerful, um, relational, wonderful experience that every one of us left saying, man, that's our home. That's exactly where we need to be. So I am excited for the chance for you to get to know more about the EPC and you'll be hearing about it. I should say, however, though, that all that was a great week. I did have a sickening moment on Friday night because it was Friday night that I realized that our flight was leaving the next night late and that every one of our pastors, which is now two, was there in California. Pastor Jim is retired and I realized if this airplane does not get home, we got no one to preach on Sunday morning. So I began to rack my brain and I thought, ah, I know what to do. So I shot Ellis a text, our brand new missionary from England. I said, Ellis, I need you to be on deck for me in case our flight is delayed. He texted back, okay, yes, I sure will do that. And then a couple of hours later, I got another text from him that said, I've been thinking and praying about this. I don't. I don't think I'm the guy to do this. Sorry to let you down. And I texted him back, you are the guy to do this. <laughs> there is no other guy. Just pray that we don't have any flight delays. So I'm sure that Ellis was excited about that. And, and, uh, and that was on Friday. Saturday evening, we get to the uh, airport and I'm pleased to see that the airplane is there. We're getting ready to load the airplane. And so I send Ellis the following text. Flight delayed. Possible cancellation. And then I just let that stew for a few minutes. And then I send another text. Just kidding. We're going out on time. No worries. A minute later, Ellis replied, good news. Proverbs 26, 18 and 19. So I looked it up. Here's what it says. Like a madman shooting firebrands or deadly arrows is a man who deceives his neighbor... And says, I was only joking. <laughs> I like a man who knows God's word, don't you? <laughs> this morning as we return to the story of Genesis, of the fall in the Garden of Eden, we discover someone else who knew God's word too. 
but who twists it for evil purposes with eternal devastating consequences. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 2 and we'll pick up a little bit of where we left off last week. Genesis 2 verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we don't want to walk around like zombies. We don't want to walk around alive on the outside and yet dead on the inside. And we know that you have sent your son to do something about that. So we pray that you would meet us through the power of your spirit today and bring new life in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's set this in context. Again, Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. He creates it with his word. But Genesis 2, God begins to play in the dirt, remember? He scoops up a handful of clay and he forms a man out of it. And then he leans over and we read, he breathes his spirit, his ruach, his life into this living man. And then having created a man, then he makes a place for him to live. He creates a beautiful garden. And we are told that the garden had trees that were gorgeous. And that the garden had fruit which was luscious, great to eat. And then he offers this wonderful command. Remember? His first command to the man was, enjoy. I've made this entire thing for you to enjoy. Eat. Eat of everything I've given you. Eat it and enjoy it. It is all for you. There's one limitation. There's one tree that you can't eat from. That's the one in the middle of the garden. The tree of of knowledge. But other than that, it's all for you to enjoy. So have at it. That's how much we covered last week. What happens next in the story? Well, for the first time in the creation account, we read these words. It was not good. Up until now in Genesis 1, every time God created something, he would say, oh, that's good. Kind of patting himself on his holy back. Sometimes he said, oh, that was very good. But for the first time in Genesis 2, we read that something was not good. What was the not good thing in the creation story? It was not good that... Man should be alone, right? For the first time, God says, "Mm, that's not good. He is alone. Everyone else has a partner. He doesn't have a partner. And so we have this wonderful, tender moment where God creates a woman out of the side of man and brings him to him. And you remember the first words of Adam when he opened his eyes and saw lovely Eve standing there before him? The Hebrew translation goes like this. Wow! Where have you been all my life? That's what the Hebrew translation really should say. And then, right after that moment, we read with God's blessing that they hopped into the sack and did one of the greatest ideas that God ever made, and that's marital sex. And you think I'm being indelicate, but that is exactly what the text says. It says they became one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The gift of sex in the context of marriage is God's great idea to be celebrated and enjoyed. It's something our culture doesn't like to remind us about. But that's where it belongs. And that's where it is best. Everything was perfect. A beautiful garden, a beautiful wife, a transparent relationship, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to hide. What could possibly go wrong? Well, let's read the rest of the story. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, 
Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. These are ten of the most packed verses that you will find in the Bible. And I'm going to do my best in a very short time to unpack the spiritual insights that we find in this part of God's Word. First of all, we meet the tempter. We are told that he was the craftiest of all of creation. But we are not really told who he is. As a matter of fact, it isn't until the very last book in the Bible, Revelation, that we are finally told the identity of the tempter who shows up at the very beginning of the very first book in the Bible. Did you know that? It comes in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Listen what we are finally told. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Ah, so now we get it. The devil, the tempter, slithers onto the stage To begin his work of leading the world astray. And he begins with one couple. With one woman. Now let me ask you this. How does the tempter lead them astray? What does he attack? Yes, God's word. He attacks the word of God. The whole story, as a matter of fact, is an attack on the word of God. And it comes in three waves. Here's the first assault. First, he questions the word of God. Verse 1, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did he really say that? He questions God's word. Now, what would have been the simplest, truest, shortest answer to that sneaky question? What is the answer? How many think it's yes? How many think it's no? How many are afraid to answer because you think you'll get picked on? The answer is no. The simplest, easiest answer would have been no. That's not what he said. Did God say that Eve could not eat from any tree in the garden? Because that's what he said. Is that what he said? Yes or no? No. It's almost a reverse of what God said. God's word to Adam was, yes, here is this garden. I have made it for you. It is luscious. And so I want you to eat it. Every beautiful tree, every luscious fruit is yours to enjoy. It's all yours. I command you to eat it. His first word was yes. But isn't it just like the tempter to plant a question in her heart? 
to make her wonder if her generous God is in fact a stingy, killjoy, tightwad. God doesn't want you to enjoy life, the tempter says. God doesn't want, he wants to limit your life. He wants to restrict your life. And so the tempter's very first assault on the word of God is to question the word. Did God really say that? Eve could have put an end to all of this if she had answered truthfully, No, you slimy jerk. He did not. As a matter of fact, God told me that I could eat anything. There's only one restriction. And because I have now seen how good God's gifts are to me, I can believe that his restriction is good for me too. So get behind me, Satan. It sure would have saved all of us a lot of trouble if that's the way that she had responded. Instead, Eve assaults God's word herself. She answers his twisting, his questioning of God's word with her own assault on God's word. Listen, listen carefully. It's a little sneaky. You've got to find it. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. What's wrong with what she just said? She adds to God's word, doesn't she? And here is the second assault on the word of God. She adds to what God said. Where did God say that you could not even touch that tree? Did he? He did not. As a matter of fact, Adam was made the tender of the garden. He was supposed to take care of the garden, presumably also the tree that was in the middle of the garden. And so Eve herself adds to what God had said. So there's the questioning of God's word. There's the adding to God's word. And now comes the third attack. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The third assault is changing the word of God. God said, on the day that you eat of it, you will die. The tempter said, you most certainly will not die. Only one of those statements could be true. And the tempter called God a liar. So, questioning, adding to, and changing the word of God. It's an assault on God's word. May I just say that that this speaks right to our moment as a church. This speaks right to our moment in our church's life. The challenge that we face as a congregation is that there are voices who appear to be now in the majority, voices in our denomination, who have taken up this ancient assault on God's Word. Did God really say this about how we ought to live our lives? Did God really say this about how we ought to behave morally? I know that you, you think that's what God's word says. It sounds certainly like it does say that, but in fact, it means just the opposite of what it clearly seems to mean. The reason the Chapel Hill elders have voted unanimously to be dismissed from this denomination is that we no longer have confidence that when God's word speaks clearly about sexuality or about the person and work of Jesus, or the need of salvation that only He can provide, or about anything else that might be at odds with our culture, we no longer have confidence that our denomination will bow in submission before that Word. And we cannot stay in a place where God's Word is questioned, and added to, and changed, and ignored. Look at what happens next. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. I want you to note this. This is very important. I've never seen this before this week. The forbidden fruit was beautiful and desirable, just like the rest of the trees in the garden. They were made beautiful. They were made good to eat. And so was the forbidden fruit. And Eve was created. Remind you now that she's in her sinless pre-fall state. She was created in her sinless state with a desire for that which was forbidden. Isn't that right? And it makes sense when you think about it. The whole of the creation account turns on the idea that we are created with the ability to make moral choices. We have choice. We have free will. Part of God's purpose in His creation was, <coughs> was that we would have a loving, really, loving relationship with Him. That His children that He had created would love Him. Creating us with free will is the only way that love matters. It's the only way it can be meaningful. If we have no choice but to follow God, if we have no choice but to obey everything He tells us to do, there is no free will. Where there is no free will, there is love. There's no love. Who cares about a robot that says, I love you? The reason that Cindy's yes to my marriage proposal meant something is that she could have said no. And as a matter of fact, the first time she did say no. <laughs> On the difficult issue of sexuality that every one of us is being kind of bombarded with by our culture today, and especially you young people, listen to this. One of the arguments that you will hear put forth is, I was created this way. God made me this way. And therefore you must embrace and endorse my lifestyle. But this story clearly says that when that the woman was created with the desire for something that was not good for her. That was in fact forbidden to her. The answer was not for her to say, well, God gave me these appetites, therefore I am going to indulge them. The answer would have been for her to say, God made me with these appetites, but he told me to master them in obedience to him. So I will not let my passions overrule me. With God's help and grace, I will live enthusiastically into his yes. And with God's help and grace, I will resist the temptation that draws me into his no. Does that make sense? There's something else that's worth noticing in this story. I told you it was packed full. Where was Adam? The jerk. Verse 6 says he was right there with her. You get the idea that she's off by herself. But he was standing right there. Maybe he was doing the same thing that, that so many wives experience of their husband. You know, changing the channels. What's going on over there, Eve? What was he doing? God placed Adam in the garden. He told him that what he needed to do in order for them to experience the fullness of life, he gave them instructions about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet when the tempter slithers up to Eve, what does Adam do? He goes passive. He hides in a corner. He shrinks away from his responsibility. He could have, he could have ordered the serpent to leave. He could have stepped in front of his wife to protect her. He could have pulled out his hoe and chopped off its head. He does none of those things. Instead, he goes passive. He allows his wife to be assaulted. 
And he gets thrown and he throws away paradise. There are men in this sanctuary this morning who have not yet embraced their God-given role of spiritual leadership and protection of their family. They have gone passive. They have stepped back from any spiritual responsibility whatsoever. And until the men step up to their share of spiritual leadership, our marriages, our families, our church, and our communities will never be safe. And I call you men to this. What happens next? We read that the eyes of both were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Only a few verses ago, we read that they were naked and unashamed. But now shame has made its way into the garden. And now comes the saddest moment in the story. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Every day there in that tropical paradise, when it was cool, God took a walk with his friends. How awesome would that be to take a walk with God? We read about Jesus One of his favorite things to do was to take his friends to the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane. They would hang out there. They would worship there. They camped out there, we are told. We see God in the Gospels hanging out with his friends in a garden. But now we turn back to the very first part of the creation story. And we see God starting there in a garden, hanging out with his friends. How cool would that be? It must have been the high point of their day, don't you imagine? But not this day. Suddenly everything was different because you see, the devil was wrong. The moment they ate the forbidden fruit, death came. The moment they did. It was the death of their innocence. It was the death of their openness, of their transparency. And as we discover here, it was also the death of their relationship with God. They heard God and instead of running to him as they had every other day since they were created, what did they do? What did they do? They hid. Now, how do you imagine that worked for them? How well is, can you hide from the all-knowing God who sees everything? This is how ostriches hide. This is how little kids hide when things get scary. Is this what it looks like when adults hide? How did that work for them? What tree was big enough that you could hide from God behind? And now come these heartbreaking words. Adam, where are you? It's the plaintive cry of a God who is trying to, who is seeking his child, who's trying to hide from him. And Adam replies, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. In other words, I was vulnerable, I was guilty, I was ashamed, and so I, could, I did the only thing that made sense to me. I ran away from you. I ran away from you, my life-giving God. I hid from you. Our sermon series is called Zombie. Because in the moment they ate of it, they began to die. And we carry that same sin defect in our genetic makeup. Every one of us traces it back to our first parents. We have all inherited that, that sin. We have all turned our, way, uh, turned our back away from God. And in our natural state, we are all dead. We have listened 
to the tempter twist God's promises in our own lives. We have believed the lie that says, because I long for something, that must mean that it is good and I should have it. We have believed the devil when he tells us, you can be your own God. You can call your own shots. And then reality hits us finally right between the eyes. It's all a lie. God is still God. He will always be God. The position will never be open. And our decision to believe the liar and follow our passions instead of believing our God and mastering our passions leads us to a zombie life of humiliation and guilt and shame and hiding. How many of you ever played hide-and-seek? Most everyone played hide-and-seek. What's the second worst outcome of hide-and-seek? Being found. Right. The second worst outcome is being found when you pick a lousy hiding place and they find you right away and you've already lost. What's the worst outcome of hide-and-seek? Not being found! How fun is that? I played hide-and-seek with kids when I was doing youth ministry in Bakersfield. We used to go into the big church and we'd turn off all the lights and we'd hide. I hid so well that, that I was waiting in the corner for an hour. No one ever found me. I finally I got up and went and found them because they couldn't find me. Maybe they didn't want to find me. I don't know. Little kids actually want to be found, don't they? That's, that, that's why when they're hiding from daddy, they will giggle and stick out their head enough to be seen. And then daddy pretends that he can't seize them and see them and, and it gets sillier and sillier. Little kids long to be found by their daddy. Big kids long to be found by their daddy too. We try to hide. We hide in destructive, non-marital sexual relationships. We hide in a fog of booze and drugs. We hide behind a massive pile of credit card debt. We hide behind careerism. We hide behind the facade of the happy family when in fact our marriages are falling apart and our kids don't seem to like us. We hide behind lies and pretense and preoccupation and, and material consumption. That's how we hide. But our longing... The longing of every human heart is that our daddy would come looking for us, isn't it? That our daddy would find us and he would wrap his arms around us and say, it's okay. I love you. I forgive you. Let's get on with life. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? When God sent Jesus, was it not on a search and rescue mission to find us? Because we certainly weren't finding him. We were running away. And God says, I can't have that. So he came to earth as a man in Jesus to find us. How are you hiding? How are you hiding from God? You see, we are like zombies because we are dying to be found. We long for God to find us. So God is calling out and he says, Jeremy, Diana, Pete, Todd, Angie, Bronson, where are you? And what he longs to hear is, here I am, Daddy. Here I am. Come and take me home. 
Amen.